Literally, I'm the black sheep of my family. In the very white world of 1980s British advertising, Jonathan Mildenhall stood out. The British media quite often would write things about whether or not I was the uh, executive that was helping change the face of British advertising, literally and figuratively. But amid all that notoriety, everybody would say, what did you do at the weekends? There was one thing he kept secret. I was just so dishonest and so inauthentic to myself. In just a moment, we're going to find out what Jonathan was hiding from the world and how becoming authentic to himself and others helped him to be a better business leader and foster a more productive work environment. I'm David Fisher, and you're listening to Three and a Half Degrees, an original podcast from Facebook. Three and a Half Degrees is a business podcast focused on the power of connection. In my job at Facebook, I get to meet and connect all kinds of people, from CEOs of major corporations to entrepreneurs and small business owners. It's funny, small businesses imagine the big businesses have it all figured out. And meanwhile, big businesses want to learn how to be more nimble. And I've seen what happens when you bring two people with opposite viewpoints together to talk. It creates invaluable and often unexpected learnings. In this podcast, I want to share this experience with you by connecting two business leaders to talk about what they've learned along the way. After we listen to the rest of Jonathan's story, you'll hear how social entrepreneur Antoinette Carroll started her business, Creative Reaction Lab, out of Missouri. Later in the episode, Jonathan and Antoinette meet for the first time, and they cover a lot of ground, including an important business lesson they both learned. You don't want to miss it. But for now, back to Jonathan. When Jonathan Mildenhall describes his childhood, it sounds like a Dickens novel. I was born in the north of England onto a council estate, which in uh, the U.S. is called a project. And I was the middle child of five boys. My mom had all five of us by the age of 27 uh, to three different men. And so my two elder brothers are to uh, one guy and my two younger brothers are to another guy. Um, uh, But I am the result of a relationship that my mother had with a Nigerian guy in the middle of those two significant relationships. And I was, um, for a long time, the only black kid in school. He enrolled at Manchester Polytechnic and discovered a passion for marketing. He told a guidance counselor he wanted to move to London and join a big firm when he graduated. She said, Jonathan, you need to appreciate that London advertising is incredibly white, middle class, and the agencies only recruit from Oxford or Cambridge. In one sentence, she had helped me realize that my socioeconomic background, my academic background, my paternal uh, heritage was, uh, if not addressed smartly would stop me getting my dream job. I made a commitment to myself that I would be the most informed, the most researched, the most creatively stimulating um, uh, graduate applicant uh, of 1989. That reaction is a familiar one for people from underrepresented groups. That feeling that you need to be the most qualified just to be considered. In Jonathan's case, it worked. 
1990, I became McKenna Erickson London's first ever minority graduate trainee on their official program. And as a result of that, uh, the British media have always paid uh, particular interest in my career and in my work and have given me um, incredible profile. Professionally, Jonathan was thriving. It was such a exciting and stimulating and terrifying time for me as a young professional living in London for the first time. Uh, Because here I was, I'd been given this incredible opportunity, and yet I was harboring this incredible secret. The worst memories were always Monday mornings because I knew that I'd have to go into the office and I'd have to lie. He was living two separate lives. I was gay, and I was living with my German boyfriend. My weekends had been in gay clubs, dancing on podiums, wearing cheap jewelry and some hot pants. And yet I would have to um, create this fabricated life that I was shopping in Ikea with my girlfriend. His race had made him a curiosity. He feared his sexuality would make him unemployable. In my own mind, I thought that coming out would almost be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of their acceptance of my diversity. He switched firms and found himself working for Cindy Gallup, one of the most powerful people in the ad industry. I was on the phone to my client, and she marched into the office, closed the door, and she sat down opposite me on the desk that was vacant, and she's drumming her immaculately manicured nails, and she's looking at me, and I'm just, like, sensing that she wanted a big conversation. So I made my excuses to the client. I put down the phone and said, Hi, Cindy, how can I help you? And she just looked at me, and she said, Jonathan, you're gay, aren't you? And I was struck with terror. Suddenly, without any chance to prepare, Jonathan had a decision to make. In that moment, I genuinely, my mind went to, this is the moment that I will lose my job. Cindy waited for him to answer. I started to sweat, and I remember my mouth dried, my throat was taut, and I said, yes, uh, um, is it a problem? I remember asking her that. And she said, she said, no, it's not a problem. What's your partner's name? And I said, well, Frank, he's called Frank. And so she scribbled on this envelope to Jonathan and Frank. And she said, I'm having a birthday party this Saturday, and I expect you and Frank to be there in all your gay glory. And marched out of the office. In any other context, asking someone to reveal their sexuality in the workplace would be discriminatory. No HR professional would ever recommend it. But in Jonathan's view, Cindy was offering an olive branch. This wasn't just an invitation to a party. It was an invitation to be his true self. We went to that party and we were made to feel so welcome and so special and so normal uh, that the lesson I took from that is that quite often there are people that are dealing with issues of identity on your team And if you've got the right kind of relationship as a leader, you can reach in and help them release it. And in the process of releasing it, they can become much more authentic and much more productive. Years later, he'd settled in the U.S., and as he was forming his own company, 
Jonathan was in a position to reach in and release the diversity of one of his employees. I have worked with this young man um, on my team uh, in three different companies. And, you know, he's a white guy. He's a middle-class white guy. He's a privileged white guy. He's a well-educated white guy. But in all the years they had worked together, there was one topic they had never addressed. I said, you could bring such a wonderful flavor of diversity to the workplace. And he looks at me, and I look at him, and I go, do you want to talk about your faith? And even though we've known each other for um, seven years, it was the first time that we'd actually had a conversation that the guy practices the Mormon faith. Just as his boss had done for him years ago, Jonathan asked that his junior partner open up about his faith. I want you to bring your Mormon wonderfulness into the office. We can all learn from your experience of your faith. And my goodness, I have seen this guy flourish beyond my expectations as he has stepped into 100% authentic, individual, personal self. Our power is in our difference. Our power is in our different perspective. Our power is in our different cultural lenses that we can apply to the same business problems. Jonathan has now founded his own marketing agency, 21st Century Brand, based on that principle. I think differently. I behave differently. In certain markets, I speak differently. And that difference is now celebrated by pretty much everybody that I do business with. And with it comes an incredible kind of responsibility to celebrate everybody else's difference that I do business with. You're listening to Three and a Half Degrees, a podcast all about the power of connection. I'm David Fisher. Up next, the story of Antoinette Carroll, a graphic designer who used creative problem solving to become a community organizer and social entrepreneur. Stay tuned after her story when we bring Jonathan and Antoinette together for the first time to talk about the real gains of listening to multiple perspectives. Antoinette Carroll grew up in Ferguson, Missouri. I've seen the realities of mass incarceration. I've seen the reality of food stamps. I've seen the reality of the education disparities. And I've seen it because I've lived it. As a result, she grew up fast. My sister's father was incarcerated for 12 years. I raised my brothers and sisters temporarily when I was in college because my mother was in jail. Her role model was her grandmother, the family's rock. I know I have my workaholic tendencies from her. (laughs) This was a woman that not only took care of the house, she was the one that cooked and cleaned, but she also had a daycare as well as the fact that she was a housekeeper at Holiday Inn for 30 years. And being with someone that has struggled but not knowing that she struggled because for her it was just the nature of working and and accomplishing really has set um, or created this mindset that I can accomplish anything that I want. Her first step was to get an education and in doing so, set an example for her family. My mother nor father graduated from high school, and so when I became a first-generation college student, 
I had this mindset that not only did I want to graduate with a bachelor's, but I at least wanted to get a master's, if not PhD, because I have brothers and sisters and I wanted them to not only reach the level that I was now setting in my family that had never been accomplished before, but then also to excel at it. Um, but I wasn't going to make it easy for them. <laughs> and so, she studied uh, design and communications in grad school while also working at her university's admissions department. When she was offered an opportunity to be a member of their hiring committee, she jumped at the chance. There was this one candidate, it was this African-American woman, and she did her presentation, and they asked everyone to explain what inspired them in this presentation. And at the end, she had a picture of her son, and she said, this is the reason why I do what I do. My son motivates me, he keeps me going. And it was such a fantastic presentation. When she left, I kid you not, the conversation in the room shifted from whether she was qualified for that position to whether she actually can do the position because she was a mom. It hit home. Auntie Annette is also a mom, a mother to twin boys. I was frustrated. I was angry. I was infuriated. It was so many words, some I can't say here because this is a family-friendly show, (laughs) where I just was surprised that even in this setting, we, we had this sense or this tension around identity and, in a sense, was discriminating against someone based on the fact that she was a mom. This moment, for some, may have potentially make them kind of shudder in and say, well, maybe I shouldn't tell people I'm a mom if I'm interviewing. But not Auntie Annette. It actually did the opposite for me. After that, every position I ever interviewed for, I let people know that I was a mother of twin sons. If they can't support me as being a mother, then they are not going to support me in this culture, period. It was a snap decision, but it's become a lifelong mantra. Individual experiences, the things that make each of us distinct shouldn't be hidden, they should be celebrated. That situation sparked uh, this more radical effort in looking at how do I look at diverse inclusion, whether it's related to gender, related to race, related to economic status, because there are many people, whether they know are trying to do this intentionally or not, that are excluding others from opportunities because of different identities that we have in our lives. Armed with that outlook, Auntie Annette started the next chapter of her career. I started my career uh, in advertising and marketing and actually doing traditional graphic design. Uh, and I did that for almost 10 years. But in August of 2014, everything changed. Darren Wilson, a white police officer, killed Michael Brown, an unarmed black teenager, on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri. The Justice Department investigation into the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department and the city municipal court has found evidence of racial bias. We need national legislation and intervention. Protests erupted in Ferguson and across the country. The state declared a curfew. The military was called in. I had only moved out of Ferguson six months prior. This happened in August. My family and I moved out of Ferguson in February. So I know the realities of Ferguson. Auntie Annette found herself searching for a way to help heal her hometown. 
There were sessions where government officials were talking to government officials, artists were talking to artists, diversity and inclusion professionals were talking to diversity and inclusion professionals. I even went to a session where there were dancers talking to dancers. There was a lot of conversations, not intersecting, but just conversations, but not really spaces around action. She noticed that in those conversations, no one was talking to anyone outside of their own clique. No one was breaking down silos to find real solutions. So Auntie Annette decided that she would. I hosted Creative Reaction Lab, which was a 24-hour challenge that brought together designers, technologists, and some activists to come up with ideas on how to address police brutality and racism in the region. It was transformational for me because it was the moment where I realized that I could do something and not just be a bystander, not just be a resident, but actually be an activist and actually take action around things that I've seen growing up in my life. Her work has already had an impact. I see individual changes um, for people, again, acknowledging their power and understanding that they can uh, create this ripple effect. But then also, I've seen institutional uh, changes in St. Louis, St. Louis City in particular. There is now a deputy mayor of racial equity. That position had never been there before. The Creative Reaction Lab is still active in Ferguson, and they have an even bigger mission. They've moved from crisis management to building long-term solutions. When you're addressing things such as racism or even sexism or, you know, all of these different kind of isms we have in society or phobias, um, we're talking about things that have been around for centuries. And so it's not going to completely transform in four years, but the ripple effect, you see it and you see the drops in the bucket. And I'm looking forward to see how not only Ferguson changes, but St. Louis changes over the next 30 years. Most of us tend to spend time with people who are just like us. But as we heard in Antoinette and Jonathan's stories, we can solve problems when we listen to people whose life experiences are different from ours. Now to my favorite part of the podcast. We're connecting Antoinette and Jonathan to talk about the mind shift that needs to happen when we're serious about diversity in the workplace. Okay. Antoinette, it's such a privilege to be able to sit down with you I'd, be, I'd love your perspective on um, how should institutions start their journey towards diversity? I mean, w there isn't a single board in the land that doesn't have a conversation about diversity. Mm -hmm. uh, and we know that there have been huge efforts to create more diverse teams uh, in terms of minority representation, female uh, leadership. Um, well, I was going to ask that. I was going to say, how are they defining right. diversity? Right. Uh, because, <laughs> right? Because many times uh, a lot of them are saying, oh, we, we're going to fight for more diversity. And I'm always left with this, what type? You know, there's so many different forms of diversity. And when you actually explicitly say what type of diversity you're trying to increase or um, represent more of, then you are able to come up with more concrete programs and policies and changes that's going to directly meet the needs 
of those identities. But when you give a blanket statement, it doesn't work. No, but that is fascinating. I'm advising lots of uh, Silicon Valley companies about their own culture and of obviously diversity and inclusion um, is a foundation of every single company's culture. But where do you start? I start um, with the individual themselves or the group of individuals that's kind of leading this charge, uh, going through their own kind of uh, assessment and reflection of their own biases, their own understanding of diversity, their own understanding of inclusion, equity, uh, because ultimately institutions are led by people and the people, <laughs> uh, their understanding is what kind of perpetuates throughout. It's not just let's look at the numbers and see who's represented, who's not. We also have to look at who's the leaders of this effort uh, and how are they going to push a lot of this out. Um, but then the second thing I always say is that we also have to start with language setting. Uh, and I kind of alluded to that when I said, how do they define diversity? Uh, because we assume that everyone has the same definition as us. And I guarantee you they do not. For us and my company, we're only starting out, but we have approached diversity in kind of like two buckets. And I, I want to kind of get your read on this. Mm. First of all, we're very, very conscious about building a team that is full of what we call endowed diverse traits. And endowed diverse traits are kind of what you were born with, and that is ethnicity, race, and gender. But then we push further and really try and build a team that is full of uh, diversity based on acquired traits. And acquired traits are things like education and work experience, etc. I will challenge it a little bit, especially when thinking about uh, endowed diverse traits, um, because that's that's a slippery slope, and it also depends on who you talk to. Um, some people may say, hey, uh, ability status is something in which you're endowed with, uh, but then also ability status is something in which you can acquire over time, depending on if you have like a, um, a disability that comes later on in life, um, you know, you become visually impaired, you know, you never know. Uh, and how do you how do you straddle that right um yeah. you have some people that will say well actually sexual or sexual orientation is something you're born with and you have some that will say well no it's not something you're born with and then there you have that conflict of uh definition what i'm saying i'm not going to say uh that what you've defined is wrong i just want you to then think about how you're going to um essentially kind of speak up around it when people challenge you on it <laughs> and say, <laughs> to be honest, um, because that's that's the importance of having that collective language, uh, because you're always going to have people that challenge how you define it. But if it's true to what you believe, um, then just say that's true to what you believe. And I'm curious what made you focus on those two areas. Like what made you want to define it as endowed versus in acquired? I think actually moving to um, San Francisco has been a huge uh, eye-opening for me in, on the whole issue of uh, diversity and inclusion. I am uh, coming from Atlanta, uh, where I work for the Coca-Cola company, and you know the Coca-Cola company would have 70, 70 nationalities, um, uh, all working together on various global brands and global marketing platforms. Uh, and then I get to um, San Francisco, and uh, honestly, Antina, I am horrified about the lack of diversity in some <laughs> oh, of these sorry, companies. I didn't mean to laugh. I just knew where <laughs> this was going. <laughs> well, it, 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 tr it truly is. It's particularly for African Americans and Latinos, 
the representation in some of these companies is so scarce. When you look at some of the communities in Silicon Valley, a lot of people went to the same schools, they've worked mm. at the same companies. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I started to really get passionate about trying to create language around the business community in Silicon Valley that went beyond the minority and female leadership representation. Recently, there was a study um, that was published in Harvard Business Review, um, and they'd studied 1,500 VCs from around Silicon Valley. And when you look at the stats, it's really quite startling at how homogenous this group is. 70%, 70% of uh, Silicon Valley VCs are white. Over 40, 40% of uh, VCs went to the same two schools, Harvard or Stanford. So we have this community, a very powerful community, that's investing in these companies that are shaping and changing the way that we as a human race live and connect and create and share and eat and sleep on this planet. But the financial engine behind all of these companies is incredibly homogenous there's a few things that feed into that. It's our history, right? Like, we're talking about generational wealth. We're talking about generational access. We're talking about, essentially, a history of Harvard and Stanford and these larger institutions being embedded into the startup and the makeup of our entire country. Uh, and I'm speaking United States, right? Uh, but then also, there's this this bias that is just... it's it's really kind of perpetuated through this lens of comfort uh, and through this lens of ease. And uh, what I mean by that is is that it will be easier for me to just reach out to people in my network. Uh, and most of the time, our networks directly look like us. <laughs> they have the exact same experience uh, that we have. It's easier for me to reach out to you because I quote unquote trust you um, versus if I actually take the time <laughs> to reach out beyond that network, that means I have to then spend more time trying to trust you. Um, and I do believe that's one of the biggest barriers out there. It's not just how do we get people a seat at the table, but then also how do we change our own mindsets or shift our understanding to allow for more time and more trust building and discomfort um, for something to look different. Uh, and different, I do believe, in many cases, will ultimately lead to better. Oh, I love that. Different will ultimately lead to better. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And how do you continually allow for that vulnerability and that accountability and that space for respect and dignity and ultim ultimate inclusion and equity to show up? Because with inclusion, that's different than diversity. Diversity is just saying you're at the table. You're, you're there. But with inclusion, it's saying that you are able to bring your best and authentic self. And to me, that means you're able to bring your purpose and your mission. You know, that, that I'm going to steal that, so I just want to be clear. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you very gonna, much for that. You can that. use it. You I, can I, use it. The idea, because you're absolutely right, so many companies focus on their own mission or their own purpose, but that actually then doesn't cascade down into the 
um, mission and purpose of the individuals that make up the company. Uh, and I'm literally going to have um, <laughs> this exercise with my leadership team uh, next week. So thanks very much for sharing that. Thank you so much. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what you continue to do uh, in your organization because it is needed uh, in Silicon Valley, but also just across, honestly, the world and just looking at how to create local impact to global impact. So it's been such a pleasure. Talking Having to diverse teams can pay huge dividends, but how do you start and how do you get it right? Antionette and Jonathan's conversation offered us ways to move everyone in the right direction. It's all about connecting with people who don't always think like us and creating environments where people can truly be themselves. It's not always easy, and you're never gonna get everyone to agree. We can all get defensive about our opinions sometimes, but the truth is our power is in our differences. And all that difference can lead to better results, not only for your business, but also for yourself. Three and a Half Degrees is an original podcast from Facebook. For more information, visit us at facebook.com slash three and a half degrees. That's three and a half degrees, all spelled out. Subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm David Fisher. Thank you for listening.